Welcome to Up Next. I'm Gabrielle Boucher, millennial author and entrepreneur. Each week, I bring to you next generation leaders and millennial game changers to inspire you to change your world. Let's see what's next. This week, we are talking to Joshua Charles. Now, Joshua is an author, historian, concert pianist. He basically does it all. Joshua is the co-author with Glenn Beck of the number one New York Times best-selling book, The Original Argument. His last book, Liberty Secrets, The Lost Wisdom of America's Founders, was an Amazon bestseller. And his next book is on the topic of Israel, and it's coming out this spring, 2016, entitled Israel, God, and You, The Scandalous Story of a Faithful God. He's a ton of other things like a researcher at the Museum of the Bible that's actually going to be opening up here in Washington, D.C., where I live in 2017. In addition to all of these things, Josh is also a contributing writer with thestream.org and happens to be a good friend of mine. So, Josh, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. You're one of my favorite people to talk to. Well, I am very stoked about our podcast today as we are talking about this generation and how we relate to the things in the past. Now, you are someone who's a millennial, but who has long been fascinated with the founding of this nation, with historical roots of Israel. And, you know, I've got to ask you, what do you think that most millennials think about the past? How is it actually relevant to our everyday lives? Well, what what they think or what they should think? Both. Yeah, well, what they think is, uh, at least my, my general sense, is that the past is irrelevant. It's uh, It doesn't apply to their lives. It's uh, They partake of uh, what I call chronological arrogance. Uh, I think actually C.S. Lewis, I, I just found out the other day that he had come up with his own term, and we were very, very close, so I, I was pretty... I found that to be pretty cool, but I, I called it chronological arrogance in my book last year. He apparently called it chronological snobbery. So whichever one you prefer, um, I see millennials partake of this attitude where essentially because something or someone or some idea or whatnot came from the past, it's a, it's looked down upon by virtue of that fact. And uh, if something is more new and fresh and fashionable, it automatically partakes of a, a heightened moral uh, grander to a lot of millennials. So that's, that's, um, it's a general, but that's probably an overall accurate picture of how they look at the past, how they should look at the past. You know, in general, um, there's a lot of folks who romanticize the past. And I think every human being, uh, can be susceptible to that. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be with history. You know, most of us, when we look back on events in our life, we probably become somewhat nostalgic about various moments and we probably romanticize it. And, I would suspect that um, we might have more fond feelings about it now than we actually did when we went through it. And that's just a a primal human uh, tendency. But as far as history is concerned, uh, I think the most fascinating thing about history is it doesn't repeat itself. I think that's a a characterization of history that is a little too absolute, a little too uh, uh, overkill. But it does uh, it does repeat on a on it's like a, the variations on a tune essentially. So it doesn't repeat, but there's variations on a, on a tune, 
And in my last book about the founders, um, I gave them a, a title, which I certainly didn't mean in any religious sense, uh, but I called them founding prophets. And what I meant by that was not that, you know, George Washington was Moses and Alexander Hamilton was Ezekiel. No, not like that, but but uh, that they were so familiar with uh, two things, human nature and human history, that they were able to talk about the human condition in such a way that their observations of human nature were in some ways predictions. And when you read it, there many many of their writings today, you would find yourself uh, realizing that it, they could have written it yesterday, and it would have been just as applicable. Which, of course, goes against the um, passively adopted narrative that most millennials have, which is that history is irrelevant. And so, um, I, had, I came up with another term for this phenomena. It comes from actually the Book of Ecclesiastes. Everybody's probably heard of that phrase, uh, nothing, there's nothing new under the sun, and that's uh, Ecclesiastes 1.9, and so the term I, I coined for it, I guess, is a, a, a one-niner. So whenever I'm reading some of these historic writings, and, and it's it's something that you know is just mind-numbingly amazing as far as it could have been said yesterday and just as applicable, uh, I, I, I typically write in the margins 1, colon, 9. And uh, but you find that all throughout it, particularly the founders, but many great statesmen throughout history, not just Americans, but Greek, Roman, uh, British, uh, European, uh, Asian. You know, there's a lot of stuff with Confucius, Sun Tzu. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different folks. But of course, I've focused a lot on the founders and, and you just find that in their writings all over the place. I can see that absolutely trending on Twitter. It's, yeah. it's a one niner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but I think that you have a, an interesting point, though, when you study generations like I do, you start to see cycles of leadership, cycles of influence, and even cycles of challenge. And I find it interesting that you called many of our founders the kind of those pro- prophetic leaders, in a sense, and many of them were part of what sociolo- sociologists actually call a prophetic generation and yeah. the millennial generation is known as the hero generation and we we are kind of lockstep in in some of the founding fathers like thomas jefferson jefferson was part of the founding of the hero generation here in the united states and where you see kind of the realization of the impact that a generation can really have and really setting the tone for a nation yeah and now looking in the past what what lessons, I think, from history, a lot of people talk about this refounding of the United States, and and especially here we are in election year, and people keep coming back to it and saying, you know, we need to conserve principles. I know you and I have talked about that a lot, about what does it mean to be conservative and what are we conserving? Sure. But also, too, you know, what are we hearkening back to? What is it that that's very pure in our founding? We're not a perfect nation, but what yep. are the core, you know, one to three principles that we absolutely must hold on to or we're going to lose it? Well, um, if you had to reduce it, it would be to, to two or three. Uh, the founders were constantly talking about the need for a free people to be a knowledgeable people. And knowledgeable doesn't necessarily mean you've got a certificate on your wall, but it, it could include that. Uh, and also to be a moral people, uh, moral slash religious uh, people. That's replete throughout their writings, uh, whether 
they were more on the uh, non-Orthodox Christian side, such as Adams and Jefferson and Franklin, or they were more, you know, I would say more on the much closer to Orthodox Christianity, probably Madison, uh, Washington, certainly some of the other founders who are not as well known, Benjamin Rush, Noah Webster, etc. Um, those would be uh, the top two. Uh, knowledge and morality, but I guess if you had to add a third, I, I, it would probably more accurately be a subset of knowledge. But um, historical awareness, um, but, I, but I ultimately think all the qualities that are requisite for uh, a, a free people would could be boiled down to knowledge and virtue, knowledge, morality, virtue, you know, there's all sorts of terms for it. But um, the, uh, the fundamental proposition of the founders is, was not that Liberty is not just doing what you want to do at any time, unhindered by any outside force. That is not the founder's conception of liberty at all. Um, the, the proposition of liberty that they put forward was a moral proposition that because of human nature, human nature that was uh, created and crafted by the creator, uh, was endowed with certain unalienable rights to partake of the Declaration's famous language. And because of that, because of that ontological reality, uh, uh, human government uh, has obligations. Um, but all, but so do individual citizens. Um, you know, uh, Jefferson referred to it. How did he refer to it? He worded it. Um, uh, he was talking about you know you can't have the either extreme. You can't have you know, anarchy and, and libertineness, but you also can't have tyranny. Um, he talked about kind of the middle way, and that was what the founders were ultimately going for. Um, and then uh, I, I forget, what was the second part of your question again? I don't either, but we'll move on. That's okay. 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 <laughs> but one thing I, I keep coming back to, and you're talking about history, you're talking about reflecting on the past, and it's it's very common in our language to say, you know, those who are ignorant of the past are doomed to repeat it. But you're saying something a little differently, aren't you? I would say, I mean, I think that 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 motto, that, you know, witticism, that aphorism, whatever you want to refer to it as, is essentially correct. Um, I guess what I would say on the it, it partakes of both those qualities, knowledge and, and morality, but probably more the knowledge side. There's a book I think uh, is probably the most important. I've said this for a number of years. Probably the most important book, besides the Bible, uh, that anybody could read if they want to have a truly uh, insightful look into what's going on in our culture right now. And it's Neil Postman's book, "Amusing Ourselves to Death." And this was written in night or published rather in 1985. And so it's, uh, you know, for most millennials, it's probably ancient by virtue of that fact. But it's really, really wasn't that long ago, only three years before I was born, before you were born. And um, he basically makes the case that he's not anti-technology, but, but he does assert that we need to be very aware of the effect that certain mediums of communication have on our culture and our way of processing information. And what he was particularly talking about, uh, he, he focused a lot on television, but, but more broadly speaking, electronic media in general. And his fundamental contention was that electronic media uh, is transforming every form of public discourse into a form of entertainment. 
And so he traced this phenomenon in education, in, uh, in politics, in religion, etc. And he was comparing the Orwellian vision of tyranny in 1984 with the Huxleyan vision of tyranny from Aldous Huxley's book, A Brave New World. And essentially he was saying, my book, you know, Postman's book, is about the, uh, uh, you know, goes on the premise that Huxley was right, not Orwell. And essentially the difference between the two is Orwell feared that tyranny would come on a jackboot. You know, everything would be censored. We'd feel the effect of raw uh, power being uh, forced upon us. Whereas uh, Huxley essentially prophesied a vision where uh, people would become worshippers of pleasure and, and, and joviality and entertainment and amusements and things like that. And so, uh, you know, Postman said that Huxley's vision was one, you know, or, or Orwell thought, you know, the government would ban books. Uh, but Huxley thought you wouldn't need to ban a book because no one would want to read one. <laughs> and that's the essential difference between the two. And, and Postman says this book, his book, is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. And it's So which that, it, one are we living in right now, Huxley uh, or I Orwell? Mean, it's, there, you, you, it's, it's, it's probably definitely more the Huxley, and I would say, although it's interesting. I personally think one of the most fascinating cultural phenomena that's happening is as we become individually more narcissistic and inward-focused, and as we see... Um, break down, you know, a lot of cultural commentators have talked about the breakdown of community, the breakdown, even, even friendships. Um, you know, there was a famous book written in the, in the eighties called the, the friendless American male. And there have since been a number of books, uh, written about the state of men in America and, and among the, the consistent observations that men just don't have friends anymore. And yet you look in history and some of the greatest, uh, partnerships both for evil and good were friendships among men you know bosom bosom buddies so to speak um but also the breakdown in families between husband and wife uh, wife or i'm sorry mother and children and uh, um you know our which in some way accounts for our uh, quickly decreasing trust in public institutions the church business government etc and um but i'd even say amongst each other as well yeah that there's a breakdown in authentic friendships and because we're friends with everyone we're known by no one and i mean we see that especially with our social media we've got this selfie generation kind of that's been bestowed on us this name when in reality we've turned into it and you you hit it on the head when you said that there's this this narcissism and it's almost an embrace narcissism and in in narcissism i think um, can can be used for good and it can be used used for evil because narcissism sure. is an is an overly empowered self-confidence that you can sure. do and you can be and I think that's what a lot of people talk about when they see our generation they say that we're entitled but it's also incredibly negative because it means that we're self-sufficient yes. and I look at many in our generation and I know you do as well and see that we are so hunger starved for for true wisdom yeah and so we're willing to you know have a meme or have a short little youtube video of something that is you know a droplet of truth and feel as if it's feeding our souls but in reality we're still just dry as a desert yep well and so that's the first part of the phenomenon i mentioned so the, the total social phenomena that i find absolutely fascinating 
and it's it's something I, I, I'm thinking more and more about. I think there's there's something really pivotal to be gained from it. I'll, maybe we'll have a future podcast about that some other time in a few months or years because it, it really is something quite deep. But So you have the narcissism on one side, but it's very interesting. As we get more narcissistic, our political society becomes more collectivist, which I think is fascinating because it's almost as if the lack of community on one side, the lack of, uh, you know, the, the decrease in the art of human relationships is crying out for the vacuum to be filled. And so, you know, it was, it was of course, uh, perhaps it's uh, all crescendoed and had some sort of uh, cathartic climax in the, there was a video of the, for the 2012 election where this young, de- the, uh, this young Democrats video you know, they said government is the only thing we all belong to. <laughs> and it's just fascinating that as as we have arguably and, and I don't I don't despise our generation. I think we've got tons of opportunity and potential as you do as well. But I do think it's safe to say we are a very narcissistic generation um, for various reasons. And and but it's fascinating that as the more narcissistic we get, the more collectivist we expect and want our politics to be. Which is fascinating, and so which which but goes I think to one- it makes so much sense though. I mean, we we're narcissistic in a sense in that we want things to be provided for us, and that we expect yeah. things to be provided for us. So whether that's our student debt to be forgiven, whether that's you know uh, free health care, whether that's basic yeah. human necessities, we believe that we are owed. You know, we exist, therefore we should receive, and it's a it's a different different approach in it well i would argue that's on the collectivist side i would argue that's on the collectivist side and but it has a a narcissistic individualistic antecedent namely and you know back in the day you know uh, tocqueville talks about this in democracy in america back in the day if an american fell in hard time tocqueville saw this all the time he said people would come from far and wide to empty their private purses uh, of course, a purse back then wasn't a nice woman's bag. It just generally referred to your, 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 um, you know, the money you had. But they would empty their purses to help each other. He said everywhere he went, he'd see Americans helping each other uh, of their own free will, no government, no coercion. And you know, if if you have a vibrant community life and you have vibrant relationships, that means that when those inevitable hard times do come, you have friends and family to, uh, you know, assuming you know, there's a lot of factors, of course, but. You know, if you've if you've uh, not burned any bridges, most of us, if we're in a bind, we can go to friends and family to help us out. And I don't mean that just financially, but emotionally, spiritually, whatever it may be. But as that disappears, there needs there's like an overcompensation on the collectivist side, which is what you were getting to, where I think that's that's part of the reason why we cry out for the fulfilling of our of these various needs or perceived needs. Um, on a more collectivist, uh, but ultimately abstract and and uh, depersonalized uh, basis, and so um, and it's it's this this phenomena that you know going along with Postman's thesis. The the thing I'm most worried about right now. I'm not even you know I I'm of course conservative and and I guess nominally Republican. I say nominally just because yeah I'm a Republican, but only to the extent the Republican Party is is. Um, you know, abiding by its principles, uh, which I think are conservative principles and should remain conservative principles. But um, I'm not, you know, the thing that worries me most and keeps me up the most at night is not even 
the state of the conservative movement or Republican, you know, whether Republicans in the White House, you know, all those certain things like that might provide a, uh, a transitory sense of, you know, calm and equanimity within my troubled political soul. Uh, the thing that keeps me most up at night is, is rather that um, we Americans, we're losing our ability to dialogue with one another. We're, we, we, there's a, and this is, could be a whole other conversation, but we've, we've lost a certain measure of social glue that allows us to even speak in the same language. And so, and when that is commensurately accompanied by a decline in the art of human relationships uh for most people who have turned inward on themselves they just uh decide it's just too difficult so i will go for the superficial uh stereotype cliche meme sort of quote dialogue rather than the really delving into the issues um you know we we demonize other people far too quickly i think we we are we are so satisfied with uh with uh, shallow answers there, I'm reminded, C.S. Lewis was referring to it in a spiritual context, but I think it applies in many ways to this. He was talking about, you know, God having this immense ocean of blessing available to us, uh, but we, in our sinful state, insist on making little mud mud piles on the sidelines. And so I feel it's, it's, it's become like that a lot in, uh, in the realm of knowledge. And I actually had a line in the introduction to my book on the founders, uh, Liberty Secrets, um, you know, we're in the information age, so it's quite fascinating, you know, to go along with the chronological arrogance we discussed at the beginning, you would think that for a generation that thinks so highly of itself in, in relation to its ancestors, that it would be in every measure, by every measure, more intelligent. But of course, that's, that's not what we find at all. Um, you know, most of what, what a lot of people said in the past couldn't even be understood by most college students today, uh, let alone written themselves. And so I wrote in the introduction to my book, um, it is thus a great twist of irony that perhaps never before has mankind been so inundated with information and at the same time so bereft of wisdom. If this republic is to continue, we must recognize this reality for what it is, an absurdity and a farce unworthy of a people who mean to govern themselves. And unfortunately, I'm seeing this phenomena uh, manifest itself in the Repu- on the Republican side. of the, I think we just saw the South Carolina debate the other night. And it was, it was just crap, in my opinion, t- to use a technical term. And... Uh, ancient, ancient yeah, terms. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, uh, and, and it was just, it was just horrible. And but I think what we're, I, I what we're lacking topic, that yeah. our founders and what we're really striving for is this vision is, is painting a picture of where we should be rather than in reaction. Yes, and ex- as you're talking about this hole that we have as a society, but specifically as a generation, this lack of authentic community where we're able to build bonds and to to form relationships and to create a foundation of trust, which I agree with you, is the very crux of our society, that if I can't trust you, not only does the family break down, but the economic structure breaks down and social structures break down, and we really have a huge challenge to overcome. But when we're willing to overcome 
our personal and then our generational narcissism to say, hey, this is who I am and embrace who you are and share it to the world and be okay with that acceptance. I think that that's, that's where we get to. I'm, I'm writing right now a lot about failure in our generation and how we relate to it and studying how as a generation, we, we don't know what to do when we fail because we've never been allowed to fail. We've Um, been protected from failure by our parents and our professors and our coaches and all very well-meaning people in our lives who've actually hamstrung us towards any future success because we haven't been able to pick ourselves up by the proverbial bootstraps and keep going because We've always, you know, had someone holding us just to make sure we didn't trip and skin our knees. So here we are in our 20s and 30s, and we're having to figure these things out on our own, and it's taking us longer. But I agree that these are the conversations that we need to be having. Now, Josh, we Well, and if I can make one quick point. Yep, please do, and then we're going to have to wrap up. Yeah, sure. No, um, ironically, this this odd combination of individualism and collectivism, uh, you know, two seemingly opposite forces, um, but which is, as we've noted, you know, in closer examination makes perfect sense. Um, It was talked about by Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America. He had this long, you know, I call it the prophecy at the end of Democracy in America, where he basically predicted what tyranny would look like in America should it come up. And, and, And it's Suffice to say, you know, another another conversation for another day, but it was absolutely spot on. It's it's actually quite long and very detailed. And um, the uh, and so if, if, if millennials are wondering why they should even care about history, uh, because the more you read history, the more you see, it's funny, the more I read history, the more I see how not just in politics, but we'll, we'll keep it to politics for now. But the more I see how politicians and frankly, on both sides um, the games they engage in, the types of things they try to goad you with. I mean, I, I've read about Roman emperors doing the same thing. I've read about British kings doing the same thing. I've read about, uh, you know, American congressmen doing the same thing, uh, you know, about uh, various uh, folks from all around the world doing the same exact sorts of things, sometimes centuries, sometimes even millennia apart. And, and so it, it, it's just, it's quite enlightening on the present to be familiar with history. So very well said. Uh, well, Josh, I've got three more questions for you, then I'm going to okay. let you go. So right. first question, it's going to be hard for you to do this quickly, but right. what do you think is the biggest challenge facing our generation? Uh, depth in all areas, uh, relationally, uh, politically, theologically, um, just a general sense that we, we lack a groundedness. Um, in the human experience, which to me, that's what history is. It's the human experience, which is so, why it's so fascinating. You know, when you're reading history, you're reading about real people um, who uh, were in many ways just like us, except for the fact that it was before us. That's the only difference. Um, and, and and so, you know, one of the questions I frequently ask people is, why limit yourself just to yourself? There's so much wisdom to be gained by the experience of others and, and, and that experience of others doesn't have to be limited to people who are merely alive. Uh, it can be broadened to encompass all uh, of the human experience as, as far as it can be deduced from, from history. Incredibly well said. Okay, second question. 
equally as difficult, but where do you see, I'm not letting you off the hook, uh, sure. where do you see the biggest opportunity for our generation to lead in the future? Uh, I think we're passionate and I think we want to see positive change in the world. I also think our generation, um, while it may not, I, I think it's interesting, it's not particularly good sometimes at at these various things we've been talking about, relational depth, political depth. But I do think that there there's a willingness there. There's a latent willingness that can be tapped. And, you know, that that that's a there's a million different ways to do that in a million different contexts. But 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 so I'll just keep it very general. I do think that we're a very passionate generation. You know, when we when we engage in entrepreneurship, I was just reading an article about this, you know, what, what's what was the shoe company? Tom's shoes or right, yep. yeah, something like they that. You know, pair for every single yeah, pair that you we, purchase. Which I think is encouraging because, you know, we've had um, you know, I'm as free market as, as the next guy. But um, you know, back in the day there just from folks, you know, in the fifties, sixties, you know, and before, just from you know, not not that it was perfect, but I've heard from many folks that you know, employers. You know, the, the the ratio of CEO pay to employee pay was was much more um, modest than it is today. And and again, I'm not necessarily opposed to the uh, the ratios on things like that. But but I think there was more of a sense of if I take care of my people, uh, they'll take care of me. You know, that's why I admire the Green family with Hobby Lobby so much. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders is saying we need a minimum wage for for everybody. Blah blah blah. Uh, which I think would be a bad idea to be forced by government, but but the Green family they pay everybody fifteen dollar minimum wage. They take care of their employees, and their employees take care of them. And so it's a they're it's able a to do that because they don't have those excessive regulations. Absolutely, absolutely. And so so I think there's an opportunity for our generation to really introduce, reintroduce perhaps. Not that it's not out there. I I, I think it'd be too crass to say it's not out there at all. But to potentially enhance the sense of social awareness and a social conscience in our, you know, corporate endeavors. So that that's exciting to me. I could both agree of the nonprofit more. and the for profit side. I want to see social justice in our generation that's truly grounded on justice, not yeah. on fairness. Vague feelings, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, final question. And I warned you about this beforehand. You did. But, so this is if, probably the, most co- the hardest question. It, it could possibly be, so get ready. Yeah. So it, it, if the 12-year-old version of you <laughs> were to meet you today and learn all about your life and see what you do, what would he think about what you do? Um, I think overall he'd think it's really cool. Um, but I just started playing piano at 12. Uh, I spent over a decade doing that. And, and most of that, I thought I'd, I would go the concert pianist route full time. Um, so there'd probably be a part of me that if my 12-year-old self, without knowing all the intervening stories and events, he'd probably be a little disappointed. But the other side, you know, I've always loved to read. Uh, I still remember driving down I-5, uh, going from the from Northern California down to Imperial Valley in California to visit family. And I still remember being about dusk and seeing a big old tree in the on the horizon. And I still to this day remember thinking something to the effect of, before I die, I want to know everything. <laughs> so, of course, that that's an insanely uh, uh, unrealistic proposition uh, for any human being. But I think that that that, you know, goal, so to speak, is, has manifested itself in reading and research and wanting to delve into things deeply. And so at, at least on that side of things, I, I think my 12 year old self would be would be very happy to see where, where things have gone. 
<laughs> well, you're almost there. You know, you're 27, so yeah, yeah, making yeah, yeah. making pretty good progress on almost yeah, knowing we'll everything. See. No, well, I don't know about that. The, the, it's like you, you, the more it's like you, you earn one more unit of knowledge, and you find out you've got five more to go, and that's how it goes. You, 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 you earn two units of knowledge, you find out there's ten more that you didn't even know about. So. That's just kind of the, the nature of the beast. Yeah, I say it all the time. You don't know what you don't know. And exactly. I certainly don't. Unknown, the more that unknowns. I learn, the That's more right. ignorant yeah. I become. Yeah. Uh, well, Joshua Charles, thank you so much. My Author, pleasure. historian, concert pianist. I mean, this guy does it all. And thank you so much for taking some time and breaking down the opportunities that this generation has, the challenges, and just having a raw conversation about who we are and what we've got before us. Thank you. I'm honored to be a part of it.